Welcome to the Triple D Podcast, Donuts, Disability, and Discourse, where host Michael Liner talks to the best in the business about community, impact, business, and donuts. Here's your host, Michael Liner. Welcome to yet another episode of the Triple D Podcast, Donuts, Disability, and Discourse. I am honored today to have a very special woman to me, um, you know, the one of the newer members of our team at Liner Legal, Deb Schifrin. Um, and first, I just want to thank you for making the trip up here. We're yeah. at Roasted and in, in Tremont. Not exactly your backyard. No. You're you're uh, an Akron lady. Correct? Now, but I'm originally east side of Cleveland. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, Deb has a long history that I'm going to let you, I'm going to shut up and let you tell us about, but... Um, you know, we've just been so honored to have you in our office. Um, and I'm going to ask you a little bit about that, but just to kind of lead us in, can you give us a bit of the, your, your background? Well, went undergrad to Washington, D.C., to American University. And how I chose American, this is before you could look at uh, online. There was no online. So I went to the library, and every college I looked at had that if you were tops of the class, Junior year, you could go to Washington, Washington D.C. and study at American University. So I said, hmm, why don't I just go to American University? So I did, and I took a lot of accounting classes and ended up with a minor in accounting. So when I graduated, I worked in accounting, because I graduated in three and a half years. Decided I hated working in accounting, even though I passed part of the CPA exam, and started law school. And how long of a gap was there between finishing undergrad and working in accounting and starting law school? Nine months. Oh, so pretty, pretty immediate. Yeah. After. Um, graduated in December or January. It was January and started in September. <clears throat> so went to law school, came out, worked with some firms in Akron because my parents had moved from Cleveland Heights to Akron while I was in law yeah. school. And went down there and ended up becoming friends with, um, running into actually while I was in law school, with Diane Newman. We ran to each other while we were both doing research. Again, it was only books. You didn't use, there was no internet to use. And we became friends, and we became each other's chief competitor with Social Security Disability. So she was explaining to someone this weekend, we used to travel to all the seminars though together. And back then we actually shared a room when we were as competitors. Once we became partners, we never shared a room again. Um, but Diane and I became partners then in 1996. We wrote an agreement, kind of like you and I did when we were doing that. We wrote it on a napkin. And we I think went, we at least used an email. Okay. This was well. <laughs> 1996, we wrote it on a napkin, and when we went to see an attorney to actually have it made into a legal document, we showed it to him, and he just could not stop laughing. Because one of the uh, terms was that neither partner will interfere with the other taking as much vacation time as they want. Because we felt that was important. Did that ever become an issue? No. No. And now it's even easier because... I can do where, as long as I have a cell phone and internet, I can work anywhere in the world. And that's something you've been able to take advantage of a little bit. Yes. So, um, so Diane and I um, were partners. 
until she re initially retired. Um, and the firm we started, there were some issues. So she left and then I left. And when I left, she came with me. She came out of retirement and came with me. And so we started up, uh, we joined Day Ketterer that folded nine months later. And then we started up Schiffer Newman until this past fall when I joined Liner Legal. And that's when Diane officially retired at the age of... <clears throat> so, I'm going to ask you to back up a little bit again. So I'm curious about the origins of what made you get into doing disability cases. Because it's not, uh, you know, the first no. practice area that many people turn to. When I first was out, was working at a firm in Barberton, Ohio. And the partners had me to handle, they had like maybe four or five disability cases. And I started to handle them. And then when I left them and went off on my own, I did a general practice, but I really liked disability. And Diane and I would talk about it. She had a number, she also had a general practice because that was the days when you could have a general practice, which really you can't anymore. And we both liked the disability law cases. So we just started, both of us started concentrating on doing disability. Social Security Disability. What What was the attraction? What is it? What was it? And then I want to know if you still feel attracted to the same thing about disability cases. Helping others. And is that still what keeps you motivated today? Yes. And, and it's interesting because what you've, I shouldn't tell your story, but what you've related to me is, um, you know, you still work very hard. Um you know, at this point in your career, maybe even more than you've worked yeah. at other stages in your career. But you've also told me that you feel more excited about doing it. I feel happier because I feel truly appreciated by everyone in your firm. And well, I think that our firm, our, not, firm, our firm, I'm sorry, our firm. It's, and I think that's what makes the big difference. Yeah. When you go to work and you feel appreciated and you appreciate others, it makes a big difference and it makes you happier. And, I still feel that I'm helping. It was interesting. I was at the Heart-to-Heart uh, -heart breakfast this morning um, in Akron. And one of the things they had everyone do is write a word that describes your strongest quality. And I wrote down empathy. And I think that's what carries over for helping others in Social Security is that I can understand what they're feeling, be compassionate about it, and give them you know, sympathy and also encouragement. It's interesting that you bring up empathy because one of the um, things that I wanted to ask you about was what you think separates a good disability attorney from a mediocre one or a bad one. And do you think that that you know, internal approach, something that can't be taught, it's not a legal skill, but would you say that that's one of the core ingredients to being good at what you do in this field? Well, I always say that Social Security disability is one-third law, one-third medicine, one-third social work. I might argue it's about 75% social work, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> follow, I'll follow you if you want to leave me. But, and, and that's the whole issue. is so You have to have the ability to care about others and take care of them and be creative and think of solutions. I mean, you, now there's a concierge, which I love at the practice. 
Yeah. And that's just wonderful because a lot of times it's trying to come up with ideas of before expanded Medicaid is where can people go for help for medical yeah. insurance. It was thinking, okay, there's this agency, this agency, this agency. Contact them, see if they can help. And, um, you know, are there, I'm, I'm interested to keep getting more yeah. perspective on what you think separates the best attorneys that you've seen from, you know, from the pack. Caring about their clients. Caring about their clients. Yes. And being willing to listen to the clients and understand where they're coming from. So, and you could argue that maybe that's a legal skill and that would be helpful in any type of practice that you would be in. But um, is there anything like from a tactical standpoint, you know, somebody who's aggressive, somebody who's, um, you know, cross-examines a vocational expert more than others? Are there other things that you think help people stand out? Well, it used to be when you, especially when you were in person, I always said you have to have some skills at acting because when the clients would say something that you didn't know they were going to say, you had to keep a straight face yet quickly think of, okay, how can I turn this to their advantage? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that when you're saying with the cross-examining of the vocational, there used to be medical experts a lot more than there are today. Um, so that's where the medicine comes in because the doctors would sometimes go, wait a second. And you go, well, have you thought about this, 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 and this? Oh, you're right. I think, and, and I'm sure, I mean, you've been doing this so much longer than me and just as a, as a result of that have so much more experience. But I think sometimes we just get trapped into these boxes that social security lays out for us when we're in hearings where, you know, judges throw out terms like frequently, occasionally, which have very specific meanings in social security parlance. But when you really think about somebody's ability to do something up to a third of the time or one thirds to two thirds, it's like we've almost dehumanized the entire process for people. Are there things that you try and do to like stay present with the client and stay present on arguing like the merits of a case and, and not getting trapped into those terms that social security likes reducing everybody to? Yes. But I, you have to do the terms though, when you're questioning the vocational, because if you don't do, question the sure. vocational witness with the occasional and frequent, the judge is going to say, I'm sorry, you know, that's an improper question and cut you off. But when you're dealing with a client, I always like to prepare them to know that there's going to be questions. And the most important thing for you to know is you can't say anything unless you're asked a question. And when you are asked at the end of the hearing, is there anything else you want to add? Do not say anything. You can call me after the hearing and tell me what you want to say. And if I think it's important, I'll put it in writing. Because every time a client says something at the end of the hearing, it comes back to bite them. Now, you coming and working um, with us at Liner Legal has been exciting because other than like the very beginning of my career, we were always outsourcing so much of our federal court work. A lot of it went to you yeah. um, when you were, you know, um, you know, operating as a part of another firm. But um, a big chunk of what you do now is the federal court work. Correct. How is that different in terms of your approach, the mindset that you bring to it? I look at everything, I guess, more in the mindset of how did the judge 
make a mistake. And that's what I really look at when I look at the judge's decisions. Did they really pay attention to what was supposed to be? Um, example of the one I'm, that I have to go edit and file today, one of them is um, someone with ulcerative colitis. Yeah. Um, I have another one that's also that's all psychological. But the judge didn't pay attention to that, just totally ignored the person's problems and the fact that they have to go to the bathroom frequently. And is it hard for you once the hearing is over, once this transcript's been made, to feel like you can make headway in getting, you know, uh, a subsequent reviewer, the federal court magistrate, to say, hey, this doesn't make sense? Depends who it is. Yeah. I'll be honest. Some of them, no. Um, Some of them, yes. And it just, it helps to lay it out. And has one of them said at the seminar I went to recently, you have to hand it to us on a silver platter. So I try and do that, which is sometimes difficult because sometimes once I get into the nooks and crannies of the case, there really isn't something for me to hand them on a silver platter. Yeah. It's interesting because, um, you know, once you get to that federal court level, obviously there's filing rules and briefing deadlines, and it's so much more formalized. But what so many people, I think, forget is that they're in, in the administrative side of Social Security, there's no rules of evidence. They've got a five-day rule, but really you can bend that. There's no rules of procedure. Um, and I almost think what gets overlooked by people is that's one of the best, um, that, that's like one of the best advantages that we have as somebody representing the client is you can make whatever you want fit. But I think we kind of get away from thinking about this in terms of, you know, there's no rules here. I can say what I want. I can do what I want. I can be creative and make a case without somebody telling me you can't do that. But it's also interesting to try and if you can put it in terms of one of the rulings or the Code of Federal Regulation, yeah, it's going to make it much harder, well, harder, but some of the judges still will deny the case. But actually laying it out for them and telling them, okay, this is the person, this person has A, B, C, D, and E, therefore they satisfy, or this is why they can't work. So I'm thinking about something that you said a second ago when you were like saying how you have to put it in terms of, of a frequency or you'll get yelled at by the judge, okay? And I've experienced that all the time. Yeah. You know, there's judges all over, you know, as our practices expanded across the country. I'm seeing this. It doesn't matter where where we are. The geography doesn't matter. But I'll, I'll have judges say, well, you can't ask that question. You need to ask questions in vocational terms. And I think that so many people, they hear a judge say that and they change the question they ask. Instead, I'll go back to the judge. And I'm curious from the federal yeah. court perspective, I'll say, Your Honor, tell me where it says that. Tell me where it says that I have to ask a question in vocational terms. If you don't want to accept the question that I'm asking, that's up to you. You're the trier of fact here. But show me where I have to ask a question the way that you're telling me you want me to ask a question. Well, you also have to attack the judge's question. And that's where I think it comes to doing the vocational terms of, you know, the judge's question results in someone finding jobs for a person. And you want to twist it and turn it and fit square pegs and round holes where the person will say, no, you're right. There are no jobs for that person. 
and I know if it was you or Andrew who asked a question, which I thought was wonderful, when they said frequently... It was probably me, before you've gone any further, it was probably me, but okay. keep going. Frequently, and you said, okay, that means rather than two-thirds of the time they can do something, that means one-third of the time up to 33%. It actually was me. Yeah. And I thought, <laughs> you know, that is twisting and turning it on its head, and it's going to be much harder for a judge to deny the case because the judge could say frequently, but you're right, that means one-third of the time the person's unable to do that activity. Yeah, yeah. And the way that I always think of my job in a hearing, especially with you know some of the more challenging local judges that we have, but it doesn't matter where you are, my job is to be a banana peel thrower. And to be thrown, it's like like the like the video games I used to play as a kid, where you were trying to like dodge somebody or throw something at them to get them off their track. Yeah. And that's what I'm doing. I'm throwing banana peels on the floor to make them trip. And when I do that reverse of a question, which I do all the time, you know, when they say that somebody can only occasionally interact with other people, that's a very common limitation that we get in social security. But if if you can only occasionally do something, that means you frequently can't. Right. That means only one third of the time. And but it's just and I think that's it. The key is when you're saying is the terms is to rather than saying the terms occasionally or frequently, saying up to one third of the time, which is occasionally, this person can do this, which means yeah. the two thirds of the time they cannot. Now, over the last several years, you know, with the help of Katie, we've, you know, created endless content on how to win a disability case. But I've never asked you okay. if you were to when you're talking to a client for the first time or they've got a hearing coming up. You've sprinkled a little bit into here, into the conversation we've had so far. But what are the best tips that you give somebody applying for disability benefits that can help them improve their chances of succeeding? Don't exaggerate what you can do. Don't exaggerate what you can't do, and keep it simple. I always used to say KISS, but people realized what the second S stood for and they got insulted. Yeah. So I just say keep it simple. But that's really a, the best philosophy. Is And the other thing I always tell everyone, especially a lot of clients who don't bother listening to what the judge is asking, listen to what is being asked, not what you think is being asked. Listen to what's asked. Don't hear what you think is being asked. Right. Give us an example of that. And I can imagine, but... Well, like when people are asked sometimes, you know, why don't you think you can work? That's a simple one. Yeah. And they'll go off on all these tangents about diagnoses. And I always say, don't give diagnoses. What are your symptoms? How do your symptoms affect you? Yeah. Has it become, have, have you noticed any difference in, in um, clients over the years in terms of your ability to relate to them and get them to go where you're trying to get them to go or is it pretty consistent over time i think it's pretty consistent yeah so you know we've talked about this like great lineage that you built and um you know from starting by yourself and then with diane and then at one point having you know a gigantic firm based in akron um so you've you've seen so much and i'm not asking about necessarily you and your career because I'm, I'm excited to help you get to be okay. a part of your next chapter but where do you think this field of law is heading? Well I always say that the practitioners meaning the attorneys or even non-attorney representatives yeah. 
need to be politically involved. Because if Congress and the administration have their way, it would be gone. They would eliminate disability in a heartbeat. So it's they, you get retirement benefits, and then you can take a cash out, like they, you can do with PA, like yeah. the Ohio retirement system, and then you're um, screwed for the rest of your lives. I think that's the key, is willing to be involved, to make friends with your representatives, your senators, and that means donating money and being... It makes a big difference. Are there changes that you see coming that scare you or concern you? Already has happened somewhat. Like, it used to be that if someone didn't speak English, that would be a relatively easy case to win. Right. Not anymore. They're saying right. if they speak Spanish, they can get a job where everyone else speaks Spanish, and you don't have to worry. And same thing with other languages as well. They don't consider that a stumbling block. The other issue is going to be is um, with refugees. It's going to be, and I think refugees are going to be eliminated from receiving any benefits. I see that writing on the wall. But I also see that for younger people, it used to be that if you were under 30 and had worked a little bit, you still could be insured for benefits, and that's going to be gone. They're just going to try and reduce the benefits reduce the eligibility for benefits. Change the grid rules. Change the grid rules yeah. and ultimately abolish disability. That's what they'd like to do. I think for us in particular, what they can do, and, and it's interesting is I'm sure you saw it there. The, um, they just released this list of changes that the Republican Party submitted to Congress. It's almost like a demand them holding yeah. up the passing of the new budget. And, you know, there are a lot of things on there that have been kicking around for years that I realize they might put that on a list, but it's never going to happen. But one that concerns me, because I can see, you know, Social Security, uh, the, the administration and the government licking their chops at this, is um, doing away with withholding of attorney's fees. Um, and there's already so many barriers to even entering this practice, but if they can release money directly to our clients... Used to be if SSI wasn't withheld. Right. And right. on a regular basis, people just wouldn't pay. Right. And it was very, you know, it was difficult. You would hope that someone would be honest and realize you helped them and be grateful and pay you your fee, but it didn't always happen that way. And that's why even with the user feeds, it became wonderful. But I'm also extremely concerned about, um, which had originally come up under Bush, was a privatization where they say let's just privatize Social Security and make it as if it's a regular retirement benefit. Yeah. There's just so so many things out there that they can do. One, Even one of the list of changes that they make could uh, really have a great impact. Which is why I'll say to everyone who's listening, even if you don't have money to contribute to a campaign, you can, it's important for you to write and email and call your representatives, your congressman, your senator, and make sure they know where you stand and that you feel these programs are important and they do help people. Um, well, it's been an awesome conversation with you, as it always, I, as it always is. I feel like um, 
every time I sit down with you, I learn, and that's the most exciting thing for me possible. But we do have a couple donuts here staring at us, and I had to make sure to get a donut that I thought was as colorful as you are. Oh, thank so you. today we're going to be tasting a glazed donut with some pink frosting and sprinkles from the Spanos Bakery at uh, the West Side Market. Will you, will you taste it with me? Sure. We'll do a donut cheers and we'll okay. see what you think of it, Deb. Thank okay. you so much. You. This is actually better mm-hmm. than I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, a little dry. Once you get to the inside, but... It's a cake, not a... Is that what it is? I bought bit into this thinking it was a glazed donut. It was a, you, no, it, and it's cake. It seems like it's, it's cake, a cake, not donut yeast. Inside. Not yeast. Yeah, but a little bit sweet. I like the frost. Yeah. I like the frosting on top. I like the addition of yeah. the sprinkles. But definitely a good donut. If you had to rate it on our on our five donut rating, what would you give it? A three. A three. I'm at about a three. Also, I'm going to be in agreement with you here. Um, but again, I'm just so grateful that you chose to yeah. make the trip up and spend some time with me. And I look forward to continuing to spend more time with you and learning. Oh, thank you yeah. very much. Thanks for listening to the Triple D Podcast. Donuts, disability, and discourse. Rate, subscribe, and tune in next week for more discourse and donuts.